1: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 30th, 2017. The Mitch McConnell really does have a secret plan edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm back, but we have lost John Dickerson now. That's okay, because Jacob Weisberg of Trump Cast and the head honcho of Slate is here with us. Hello, Jacob. Hello, David. We haven't lost John. (laughs) John's just temporarily.
1: (laughs) He's in the wilderness of Aspen. It's very confusing there and hard to figure out where you are amidst all the yummy food and beautiful mountains. He'll be back, though. And
2: that is Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine. Of course, hello, Emily. Hello, hello. On this week's GabFest, is the Senate healthcare bill dead or is it just resting? Then a huge week at the Supreme Court, we'll talk about wedding cake, baking, travel ban, breaking, Neil Gorsuch, something that rhymes with baking, snaking. Then the White House's taking. war on the press. Yeah, Neil Gorsuch taking, exactly, or takings, maybe. Then the White House's war on the press. Is the White House winning that war? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter Mitch McConnell delayed a vote on the Senate version of the healthcare bill this week when it became clear that he lacked the votes to even bring the bill to the floor. The bill, which was crafted in secret, has faced savage criticism from everyone who cares about healthcare, from also the poor, old people, people with disabilities, children. It has 12% Human support. Beings. Has 12% support in one poll I saw which is less than lice support <laughs> for the bill has dropped 24 yeah. percent for the 12 percent i don't know who that's that interesting 15
1: like percent of people just support anything or 20 percent exactly on, lice yeah what about ticks? dubious Deer ticks?
0: dubious fact okay. I, I think before the french election um francois Hollande was down to four percent approval rating i wonder how that's possible but yeah hmm. lice don't have 12 percent. i don't believe that Maybe we we don't know as much about lice as we think we do. Maybe was
3: there's that a whole in the same lice poll
1: as the <laughs> Senate and House healthcare bills? Were they like Aka, Brica, lice, ticks?
2: I just did, the problem was I just read the headline, so I didn't okay. I didn't I didn't dig in. But maybe Kevin will figure this out as we're taping. Among Republicans, support for the bill has dropped 24 points in the past couple of months. The CBO score released on Monday found that. The Senate bill would cost 22 million Americans their insurance of just about the same number as the House bill passed earlier this year would. And the Senate bill does not solve any of the problems Republicans or Donald Trump report to want to solve. It wouldn't lower premiums. It would massively raise deductibles. It would cost millions their insurance. A recent study, I, which I've seen Tool Gawande cite, but it suggests that simply the fact of having 22 million people lose their insurance could cause 25,000 to 80,000 people a year to die every year, could cause health outcomes to decline enough to to cause 80,000 deaths. But at least the rich would get a huge tax cut. There are a lot of enormous questions about this bill. Why are Republicans pursuing such an appalling policy, a policy condemned by everyone serious about health care so aggressively? And second, maybe more important for the moment, does Mitch McConnell... Master tactician have the mechanism, have the means, whether it's bribery, pork, sweeteners to buy a victory for this bad bill anyway. So, Jacob, what is the next step now? Now that McConnell has pulled back, it appears that the the bill is by no means dead.
0: Well, I think it's dead-ish in its present form, and I think there's there's always this kind of hype about McConnell as a, as a master manipulator, legislator. I mean he has the obvious common sense that you don't want to lose a vote, so you don't put it up to a vote if you're going to lose the vote or if you don't even have the votes to bring it to a vote, which you have to have in the Senate. I don't think this version of it – will. I don't think we'll see it again. I think it was too unpopular and it was too – self-damaging for Republican senators who, you know, are pretty good calculators of their own self-interest. Uh I think there were several of them who were, you know, facing whatever their next election is, who just didn't want to do it for a vote for any version of this bill and I don't think it was just a matter of throwing in a, you know, state-specific sweetener here and there. But I think the next version either has to involve some kind of compromise with Senate Democrats or some sort of discussion with them about it, or starting over with a different approach, which, of course, is a problem because the House passed a bill. And eventually, if they pass something, they have to harmonize it.
1: So you don't think that the savings, savings in air quotes of $200 billion. So that's the amount that the Senate bill, the the House bill costs $200 billion more than the Senate bill. So there's like this idea that there's this $200 billion McConnell has to sprinkle around to the reluctant senators like Susan Collins and Dean Heller and Lisa Murkowski and Alaska. You don't think that we're going to see a week or two of deal making to see if you they can get those senators on board.
0: Well, the way a lot of the senators who came out against talked about it, they didn't make elaborate efforts to leave doors open to negotiate. But I also just think the you know the more objective judgments about the bill ended up being really powerful. Twenty two million uninsured. I mean, David, that New England Journal of Medicine article you cited that Atul Gawande co wrote was amazing i mean it was very you know methodically tried to come up with an estimate of increased death from people losing insurance and yeah there's a range of the numbers a range but it's on the order of the number of people who die every year in car accidents or the number of people who die every year from gun violence. I mean, it's tens of thousands of people, um, will die. It's statistical death because it's very hard to point to, to the individuals. Um, but there is an increased death rate when people don't have healthcare coverage. It's a very, it's a very clear line. And I just think things like that made it really, really hard for Republicans who face any kind of competition in the Senate to vote for it. The amazing thing is that there are a few Republicans on the right, like Rand Paul, who are opposing the bill on the basis that it's it's not a real repeal of Obamacare and not conservative enough.
1: Right. Well, there's also, I think, I mean, those senators and conservatives on their side are claiming essentially that CBO score is wrong to start with, and that also that this privatizing of insurance is going to somehow lead to outcomes that no medical expert, no neutral arbiter like CBO thinks is right, right? They think that costs are going to come down. They're kind of ignoring these very high deductibles and evidence of higher premiums, especially for older or sicker people. So it's a different vision of healthcare where you privatize everything and that has this kind of magic wand effect. I mean, what has been so striking though is that aside from those deeply conservative senators, the efforts to sell the bill by Republicans, by President Trump, by his surrogates in the media, by Pat Toomey, the senator from Pennsylvania last weekend, they're lies. They're just claiming that the bill is not fundamentally changing Medicaid, not taking away health insurance for people, not raising prices when all the evidence is to the contrary. And and I think that's evidence for your thesis that this bill is indefensible, that they can't even come up with a defense of it that is like, you know, res- any way resembling reality.
2: Well, I think it's it's points to some a deeper Issue, which is that they don't have a theory of the case about healthcare, or insofar as they do have a theory of a case, it is Obamacare. That was the conservative idea for how healthcare in America should work, which is that we maintain the employer-based system, and the, then there's some kind of uh, uh, sort of incentive system that encourages people to get insurance because they don't actually believe ideologically in anything they're doing. It makes their it makes whatever they're doing uh, incredible. It is impossible is, to believe it. And whereas Rand Paul. God love him. Actually, does believe this lunacy that he has about how the private markets will will fix healthcare, even though that's insane and would be damaging.
0: Well, is it David? Is it that they don't know what they believe in, or they can't say what they believe? I mean, I think at least a number of them are kind of crypto libertarians, and you know what they really believe is they don't want government involved in this part of society and they're willing to live I, with the consequences I, but they can't say that
2: i don't think that i don't think i think there is a core of people who believe that i think brand paul believes that i think mike lee believes that there's Johnson like 47
1: of them who no, believe it. Like no they every, don't
2: actually believe it i mean they don't they all know that in reality it's this would just be incredibly destructive people won't have health care it'll be damaging they they basically lock themselves into an anti-Obamacare position when Obamacare was the thing that they just should have just accepted in some fashion, but they couldn't for political reasons. And now the only position they can stake out is one – that doesn't make any sense.
0: But give them credit for their juvenile and Randian convictions. I mean, they they do believe this. Their vision of society, I'm not talking about all of them, but I'm talking about a really significant faction on the right that's even stronger in the House. They believe in a more social Darwinian world. It's a libertarian vision of society. It's totally unworkable. It's cruel. It's absurd in many ways. So is Marxism. It's the Marxism of the right. But they think, you know, if the government doesn't intervene in the market, people will be free and rich and and we'll all be better off. And
1: there's all this evidence from other countries. I mean, (laughs) one of the... More sort of ironic parts of this is the conservative touting of Singapore, which is not a free market healthcare system. There is a lot of government intervention. There is serious price control in Singapore, right? So even the model that gets touted as like this conservative alternative from another country is not really what they're selling.
0: I mean, the model they really like is kind of China, where theoretically there's a government healthcare system, but in practice you have to pay cash if you want medical services, and everything is a Kind of, honestly, a kind of free market system of bribes and, and connections. And that's how you get healthcare. <laughs>
1: Sounds great. I can't and, wait. Well,
0: I mean, but that's, I mean, a free market system, you know, that was the, a, a system without insurance, a system, I mean, you can have insurance in a free market system, but you can also just say, you know, hey, look, healthcare would be vastly cheaper if people just paid for it directly.
1: And lots of people wouldn't have it.
0: Well, I think we're, Debating
2: about whether this represents 20 percent of Republican legislators or 70 percent of Republican legislators, I don't think that the majority of Republican legislators actually think we should get rid of Medicare and old people, all old people should be out there in the private market trying to buy
0: the health care that they need. I actually I – Well, look at the history. Look at the history. They, they were, opposed they were it to the...
2: begin with, but they don't right. –
0: but they, they reconciled themselves to the political reality. They didn't come around philosophically to the idea of Medicare. They just kind of they 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 re- recognized at some point that they'd lost that fight. And because of Obamacare is still recent enough and because it passed with no Republican support, you know, they still had this idea that you could roll it back and they haven't given up on it. Yet. I
1: mean, look at the attack on Medicaid, right, which is more entrenched, more popular, um, you know, pays for the majority of nursing home residents as we were talking about last week. And uh, that's, you know, on the kind of on the chopping block here in a way that I think is good proof for Jacob's thesis.
2: Why do you think President Trump has been so irrelevant to this conversation? It's clear he doesn't have the faintest idea what is in the bill. He doesn't understand it at all. He doesn't know or acknowledge that there are huge tax cuts, which is the kind of primary uh, activity of the bill. But he's not being used. He's not. He's not. Uh, he has no
0: no role in it because he doesn't have a clue about what's in it. He doesn't know or care. I mean, he could. He if the if they passed a bill saying you know pineapple is in charge, he would say, great, we've won a tremendous victory. We've done what we said we we're going to do. You're going to sign it. He'll sign it, but he won't read it. You can't engage in even the legislative horse trading very effectively if you don't understand what the bill's about. You don't understand why people are opposing it. I mean, look, I mean, he he championed the House bill and held a huge, you know, celebration on the, uh, at the White House when it passed. And then he said, oh, yeah, but I do think it's cruel or mean. I think it's mean. You know, he says whatever he pops into his head and seems likely to be popular that day.
1: Right. So he doesn't have their backs in terms of making a good argument for the bill. He just keeps talking about, you know, Obamacare and these like death march terms, which are not even true and aren't reflected in the polls. So the Republicans who are on the fence know that that's there. And then I think so there are two things that puzzled me this week. One is like, I don't understand what McConnell is doing. If he was going to do all this deal making with this $200 billion, why didn't he do that behind closed doors and get these folks on board or at least try to before he introduced the legislation? It's not a good idea to have the sort of buying off of Lisa Murkowski, whether it works or not, happen in public. And he seemed to have insulted a whole bunch of people like Ron Johnson in Wisconsin just by ignoring them. So I don't get that. Like, fundamentally, it makes me wonder if maybe he doesn't really want this bill to pass. Although if that was true, then you'd think he would be like, "Oh, pull, forget it, gone, move on." So that's puzzling. I don't know. But I, this-
0: I, I mean, you could also argue he got it far closer than anyone would have gotten. I mean, you have to use this combination of of inside and outside pressure, right? You can try to make all these deals in private, but you're there's still going to be a moment when it's exposed to the light and and the people who have agreed to support it. Are subject to external pressure. And also you have to use the external pressure both from the White House and from pressure groups, you know, like threatening to campaign against Republicans running for re-election. I, I mean, but I, I, I sort of think he did the best he could with a, with a, with with a, a piece a of impossible. crap. Yeah.
1: Maybe. I mean, I think he overestimated the public pressure because Trump is not that helpful. And then this whole thing of going after Dean Heller with these attack ads seemed to be something that McConnell did not actually want to happen, that the White House didn't check in with him about. Out and then McConnell said, like, hey, are you kidding? Dean Heller, like, we need Dean Heller and he's vulnerable anyway. And that was interesting to watch that unfold.
2: I, I think, Jacob, in particular, you are prematurely burying this bill. I think there is a a long way to go. First of all, they feel that this is table stakes to do anything else that they want to do. So they, That's it would the, be very hard we, for them to yeah. do a tax cut or anything else serious legislatively unless they get something that they can call an Obamacare repeal passed. And second of all, they will go back and they will – they all, even Susan Collins, even Dean Heller, they want a legislative accomplishment on the record.
1: Right. And, and that momentum propelled the House carol- ca- the House bill through the second time. So what did you think about this kind of feint McConnell made where he said, well, if we can't do it with just Republicans, maybe we'll have to reach out to the Democrats. Like I was surprised that he said that because once you open that door, haven't you kind of given the lie to your whole first strategy?
0: I mean, the Democrats have, have got to be very wary about any kind of negotiation because they could, they could get screwed very easily by, you know, starting to talk and then it's easy to accuse them of negotiating in bad faith and not really willing to, you know, that, that becomes part of the political strategy. Look, David, I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's not a dead parrot. It's you know, it's 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 on it's on life support. I mean, forgive all the you know the medical metaphors, but I just think if it comes <laughs> back, you dead know, parrot is not a medical
1: metaphor. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> Where did that come from? Monty Python. Yeah,
2: because I said my intro was a Monty Python. intro.
0: Well, the med- dead parrot is you won't, so someone yeah. won't recognize that it's dead, yeah. you know, the, but, um, I don't, I think this version of it is dead-ish. I'm not saying they won't pass anything. They've got to give another try to, but I think what they pass might be, Not have not much to do with this bill, but might still be something that allows them to claim some sort of victory and say we repealed Obamacare. I mean, look at this point; they could, you know, change a common Obamacare and say we've transformed Obamacare. I mean, that's how
1: about stabilizing the insurance markets in the states where they're like all a mess? How about that? Could that count?
0: They'll take credit for it if they if they if all they can pass. I think they'll you know they'll they'll give it a shot if they they don't just
1: change the name of the Affordable Care Act and stabilize the insurance markets.
0: Emily, actually, just to that point, if
2: it fails, if they can't pass something, whose political victory is it? Do Democrats actually get a political victory or just Republicans get a defeat?
1: Mainly Republicans get a defeat, but Democrats get a victory. I mean, then Democrats have to start figuring. Well, I don't I mean, they don't have the power to stabilize the insurance markets. But then you have this. They question about the uncertainty that's been created in those markets in certain states. They really are shaky. And the Trump administration keeps playing chicken with them this way that is really not helpful for people's actual health insurance and lives. So, you know, then the Democrats have to figure out some way to, I think, work with the Republicans do, to try to fix that.
2: Do you guys think that that Democrats should. Smart Democratic politicians should stake out the Medicare for all or single payer space now and just hold on to it and occupy it and attempt to build that and and sort of make that their future rather than say we're going to nibble around the edges of Obamacare when we get the chance and, you know, slightly modify it.
1: The next move that's the most appealing to me is the Medicaid and Medicare buy-in moves, which is essentially like a different version of the public option. So rather than a huge dramatic shift to single payer, which like completely changes the way people get insurance and also potentially um, ends employer-based insurance. I mean, it's just the kind of like revolutionary upheaval that makes people nervous. But a buy-in is incremental, right? Then you offer... This option and Medicaid as well as Medicare have have become more popular and seeming more appealing in a lot of places than the private insurance health care exchanges that Obamacare offers. So you offer that and you see how it goes and then you kind of can transfer people onto it. Gradually, that just seems like a more obvious way to go to me, Jacob. What do you think?
0: I think it's a sort of retaliatory move. I mean, it, you know, Medicare for All is national healthcare, where the you know it's it's essentially single payer. You know, if the Republicans repeal Obama, I mean, if they really do undo Obamacare, I kind of think that's the answer that we need something simpler, more universal that will be harder to take away. But I also don't think the costs of that system are astronomical. I don't favor doing it without figuring out a way to pay for it.
1: Well, they're astronomical in terms of public direct public spending, not compared to what we actually spend on healthcare as a society, right? Well,
0: that's true, but I mean, all because it all becomes public spending, you know, you have to finance it some yes, way and totally. it would, you know, you would need a huge tax increase and I'm not I'm much less opposed to that as as a solution than I would have been partly because of what's happened. I think if you can't get Republican cooperation and having a market-based system and making it work, then at some point you have no choice if you believe in universal care to have a government-based system. I mean, if if you guys are right and this bill comes back to life and it passes and it's 22 million people lose insurance, absolutely. Next next move is is Medicare for all. Just a quick announcement, which is that we have a Slate Plus segment coming up at the end of the show for
2: Slate Plus members. You can become a Slate Plus member by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And our Slate Plus segment today is going to be, there ought to be a law. What things should be crimes that are not crimes? Or maybe even what crimes should not be crimes. We could do the reverse as well. There ought not to be a law. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? By visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Supreme Court uh, closed up for the summer this week or is about to close up for the summer and go off on its three-month summer vacation, which is nice work if you can get it. But it had a gonzo week. Lots of action. And we will focus on three Areas. Emily Bazelon will guide us
1: because <laughs> I've been these three crammed areas. into one topic despite my incessant Emily wanted every to topic to be everyone everyone
2: every topic to be a Supreme Court topic, but instead we've we've so confined it to one. The one week of one. the year,
1: man, the one week of the year.
2: Uh, so those three topics will be the court restoring at least temporarily some of President Trump's travel and refugee ban. Second topic will be the huge. Religious liberty, marriage equality, cake baking case—the court will take in the fall—and sort of some of the other religious liberty cases that the court's been considering. And third is the emergence of Neil Gorsuch as a third musketeer with Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas. I guess he would definitely be—he would definitely be a musketeer. He loves guns. He would definitely want a musket as a musketeer. <laughs> so he would—he yeah, definitely I'm down be a musketeer. with that image. That's He's a fine. S- Second Amendment absolutist. We can all every man a musketeer. Um, So, Emily, I I read about this travel ban thing four (laughs) or five times, and I still couldn't explain it. So what have they done?
1: What have they done? So there were two lower court orders that stayed the travel ban, stopped it from going into effect. One was from the Ninth Circuit and one was from the Fourth Circuit. The Supreme Court said, we will hear this case. We will review those orders in October. In the meantime, we are... Lifting the stay, letting the travel ban go into effect for people who do not have a bona fide relationship with a person, a relative mostly, or like a university or job, an entity in the United States. And we will let the travel ban go into effect for everybody else, the the lacking a bona fide relationship folks from these six majority Muslim countries that are on the travel ban list. So that's the extent of it. It's a strange. Sorry, can I ask a
0: question? Which is that? But there is a refugee ban piece of it too, right? And that was only supposed to be 90 days, which presumably is after a three-month summer vacation, the issue of 90 days becomes moot?
1: Yeah. So they added – so, right, there's a 90-day ban and a 120-day ban in there. But certainly the 90-day and maybe even the 120-day could be moot. So they the court added a question to the list of questions that they're reviewing, which is – Starting on with a June 14th starting date for putting the travel ban into effect, and they picked that date because of when the Ninth Circuit lifted the stay of the review. The this is like the internal Department of Homeland Security, like we're looking at all our vetting procedures review. They asked whether the case would be moot using this June 14th date as the starting date for the 90 and 120 day reviews. And then there's this funny paragraph where the Supreme Court says basically like, we're expecting to hear about how that review goes, guys. So it's because nobody this partly because of the way the Ninth Circuit stay was designed, but what is the government doing exactly, right? Like the whole excuse for this travel ban was the vetting procedures aren't adequate enough. We need to go check them out and make sure no-
0: Hit pause so we sort it out. Yeah, Yeah. so,
1: you know, okay, like go figure out what to do. And and at the end of this 90 or 120 days, are you going to say that, you know, you're- banning travel indefinitely, that it's not safe to let anyone in? Are you going to tell us what your new review policies, your new vetting policies are? There's a very... Thin justification in terms of internal documents about why the Trump administration put this ban into effect and what they're hoping to accomplish. And essentially, the court in this order is kind of smoking that out and setting up the possibility that by the October date, there won't really be anything left of these travel ban executive orders. Now, it's also possible the Trump administration could issue new orders, but then that would start a new case. So, right. yeah, it could totally I mean, be it moot. sounds a little l-
0: like we'll decide in October whether you should have been executed in September.
1: It does have a <laughs> ring of, <like laughs> of that to it. Yes, there is this whole timing question, which is like a strange question. You know, there's also – but this it, deeper set of questions, sorry, about like granting visas and what the rules should be and whether you can discriminate against people on the basis of nationality or religion. And then there's a constitutional question about religious freedom. But the court may never reach those. But well, they
2: desperately don't want it. Right. They desperately don't want to have to talk about whether Trump's tweets. T- display some animus towards Muslims and whether with the extent that the executive statements color, uh, you know, how they're going to make a decision about this. They really, 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 really don't want to have to make a decision on the merits of this. Right.
1: Probably. I mean, some of them certainly are elected and you're totally right. that This is exactly the kind of question about executive authority that courts get very they like to tiptoe around because. Well, so the president's authority is really at its height in any question to do with immigration. So that is supposed to make this a relatively easy case. But these statutes that the court is interpreting have both a broad grant of authority in the issuing of visas to the president in them. But then there's this amendment from 1965 that prohibits discrimination on the basis of nationality or religion in the issuing of visas. And nobody's really... Uh, no, the Supreme Court has never really explained how those provisions interact, and uh, that's one big question here. And then there's this constitutional question about religious freedom, and and bound up in executive authority. You're right; like they would be happier not having to sort all that out, probably.
0: So, are they sort of seeking a truce with the executive branch? I mean, is the, is the move here for the executive branch to say, come back and say, all right, we did the ninety and hundred and twenty day thing, we had a review, so that's off the table, and now we're just saying that we want want this you know, more limited ban on these countries. And you've already made clear that it's modified in, in this way for people who have relatives. And so basically narrow the scope of the case to the extent that it's not so momentous. And as David's saying, they don't have to really decide about whether they're going to circumscribe executive power here.
1: I mean, that does seem like the sensible conclusion that it would just sort of end with the whimper. And But then there's this question of when you go back to the kind of Stephen Bannon, Stephen Miller drafting and the fact that that Trump in some relatively recent tweets said, oh, we should have stuck with that first order. Does the administration want to back down and have a resolution that makes it seem like a kind of grown-up in the room? Or does it want to have a fight with the Supreme Court or, you know, with the media? What's the sort of political utility of resolution versus, like, feisty, we're making the country safe by keeping out the bad guys? I mean, this administration is so Determined right now to appeal to its base, that I'm not sure what the political answer to that is, even though the legal answer seems obvious.
0: Goes back to what we were saying about healthcare, right? They want to declare victory,
1: right? And that was their reaction to the court's order this week, was to claim total victory Oh, we're honored by your decision, even though most of the people who are trying to get in are going to get in because they have some tie, right? We weren't letting in a whole lot of people from Yemen who had zero tie to the United States just to, like, come (laughs) check things out. We just weren't doing that. Those are the people who
2: are getting stopped anyway. Right, exactly. All right, let's um, move on to the next theme here, which is uh, religious liberty and marriage equality were big themes of the term. They look to be big themes coming up. There was a marriage equality case involving the right of a same-sex spouse to be listed on a birth certificate in Arkansas that was interesting. There was a religious establishment case in which the court came down big in favor of allowing government funding of religious institutions, allowing, in this case, a church to get government funding for a playground project. And then we have a big case that the the court is going to take in the fall, which kind of combines these two themes, Masterpiece Bakery, awesomely named, a Colorado baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a gay couple, this baker calls himself an artist and he says he's arch. She, he should not be compelled to make art for something he doesn't believe in or compelled to speak about something he doesn't believe in. And Emily, take it away.
1: Well, so the first thing about this case is that the scope of it is really important. So in Colorado, the state passed an anti-discrimination measure, which makes it illegal for a business to discriminate against people on the basis of a bunch of things like race and religion and also sexual orientation. And so the question is whether that generally applicable neutral law applies to this cake maker. In a state without that kind of anti-discrimination protection for gay people, you could say I'm not baking your cake for any reason you want. So we're only talking about parts of the country where states have decided that they want to – you know, give gay people and and marriage equality the same kind of status that they give to discrimination against race and religion. And I think that's really important in kind of balancing the interests here, because we're talking about a state commitment to equality and whether this law that would make it illegal, you know, if someone said they wouldn't bake a cake for me because I'm Jewish, should gay people have that same protection when the state extended that same protection to gay people?
2: One thing I didn't find out, it seems to me like a, a relevant matter, whether this is like a guy with a storefront who welcomes every customer in or if it's somebody who has a private at-home baking business. I mean, it's a guy it, with
1: uh, a storefront.
2: So so like the, they're clearly like... If you have a public business that's just pub- accommodating the public, the rules should be different than if you're you're sort of a one person operating relatively privately, I would think.
1: Yeah, I'm so sad I'm forgetting the name of this, but there's like a Mrs. something, Mrs. Murphy's oh. Law. Back in the 60s when, you know, this question of public accommodation was coming up in the civil rights movement, there was a little exception. You're basically like letting a room in your house you were allowed to discriminate against black people. It was a business because you were taking money for renting this room. But the idea was like, well, it's so small and personal, it's almost private. They kind of made this little carve-out. That is, I don't know what I think about that, but whatever, that is not this.
0: Has anybody uh, profiled this guy? I mean, you know, these uh, small-town wedding cake decorators, florists, unisex hairstylists who always seem to be in the middle of this. I mean, shouldn't they just be allowed to work out their gay panic and private give them a few years i mean i think you could see these guys and you know carrying round floats in the gay pride parade but they're having a difficult time with what's going on with the with the speed of change
1: right so people including i think andrew sullivan have made that argument uh, in the last couple of years um that this is a kind of like remnant and that these people aren't particularly powerful so who really cares but what if you is so the problem with this is like so first of all imagine the civil rights movement in which like the lunch counters got to say like oh you know what we need a few years to work this out come come back to us later or you know we have a religious objection to providing lunch to black people and they had been allowed to perpetuate that kind of discrimination as a business that there's just something morally abhorrent about that and then also to me this is why it's so important that colorado has a law so if you are a gay couple being discriminated against, you choose to bring a complaint, the, the state is supposed to be like, sorry, in this case, we can't protect you against discrimination, even though we could protect everyone else. Like, how are you supposed to have a state law like this that doesn't apply to the people who need its protection? Well, but I don't just, get that. But,
2: but just to to dig into that a second, Emily, isn't the point that Neil Gorsuch will make in his fiery uh, dissent on this? Ah, uh, you're assuming his, it's a dissent. Or his fiery probably. concurrence on this? Will be that the, you know, the First Amendment protections for religious liberty outstrip any legislation that a state may so, choose to pass.
1: Well, right. Except there is no doctrine that actually matches up with this right now. So, sorry, this is going to go into the weeds, but it used to be that the First Amendment freedom of religion test was a balancing test. Substantial burden on your religious freedom versus the government's compelling interest in whatever kind of law it had passed. Then in the case called Smith- in an opinion by Justice Scalia, the Supreme Court said, no, that is not the test anymore. If you have a generally applicable law and it's being neutrally applied, then your religious freedom does not win out. In, and we're not going to balance anymore. We're just going to say, like, is does the government apply this law to everybody in the same way, whether they're religious or not? If the government does that, it just has to basically have like a legitimate interest in having this law. That's it. Congress then basically overturned that ruling in Smith with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But that act does not apply to state laws. It applies to private entities. Hobby Lobby used that law very effectively and won by reinstituting this um, balancing test. But there is no state Religious Freedom Restoration Act in Colorado. So we are in the land only of the First Amendment and only in the land of Employment Division versus Smith. And so unless the Supreme Court wants to overturn that precedent, which has been the law, I believe, since 1990, I like how? The, in, on the basis of what is the religious freedom of this baker worth more than the equality interest of this couple when the state has this law. I just don't see how you get there, but honestly.
0: conservatives are pretty consistent about this, right? I mean, what was the peyote case?
1: That's Employment Division versus Th- Smith. That's
0: Smith. So the conservatives were on the right side of that, which is supporting the peyote-eating Indians.
1: No, as... Justice Scalia was against the peyote-eating Indians.
0: He was? Yes. But weren't the other conservatives all in favor? I mean, that was the, that was why they said they needed the Religious Freedom Restoration yes, Act. Right? which
1: was actually a bipartisan act, right? right. Congress, on both sides. I think Biden co-sponsored that act or at least like voted for it, right? There was right. this sense of well, religious groups, religious minorities need more protection. Though that doesn't apply to states. That just applies to private businesses. Right,
0: but I mean I just did a slightly higher level of abstraction. If you're f- if you're f- uh, for the 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 cake baker but against the peyote eaters, you're you're I don't believe That's, it's really about right. religious liberty. It's about it's about prejudice. But if you really take a a, a consistent position that religious liberty is the fu- is one of the foundations of the country and that it trumps everything else if people have a re- genuine religious belief. I can credit that argument so you know here I, I, don't, I don't think I, I don't think in all cases it's merely a mask for prejudice. I think it's very important that we, protect the, the religious right, even in right. extreme cases where people are kind of nutballs.
1: So but r- then how r- far does that go? Does that mean that, you know, my right not to bake you a cake is more important than your right to be protected by your state law?
0: I think it might be. I mean, I think there's an argument there which I would credit, and
2: so honestly, how I don't. Well, do you so,
1: justify- I, I, Sorry, David.
0: Well, no, I mean, I think where your argument gets
2: dangerous, Jacob, or where the where the court has got, I, I agree with your principle. Where the court has gotten cockeyed on this is this notion that an individual's rel- strong religious beliefs you should credit, but the idea that a corporation, that a kind of corporate entity, has those same strong religious beliefs, and we should attribute to that corporation the same protections that we attribute to a religious person going about their daily life. That, to me, is where it's all. Yeah,
1: that was the Hobby
0: Lobby case, and that was ridiculous. I agree with
2: you. Right, but, but a masterpiece, masterpiece Cake yeah.
1: Shop a corporation or a person? Because part of the... what this cake baker is arguing is that he's being asked to promote a government message of respect for gay marriage that he doesn't believe in. And the Colorado courts rejected that claim and said, look, first of all, you know, every piece of content, i.e. baking a cake, that has some kind of expressive quality is not speech that's protected by the First Amendment. Like, we get into a very weird (laughs) idea there. And so the test is, is it inherently expressive? And are you really going to be identified with a particularized message? And the Colorado court said no and also pointed out that the cake baker can put a notice on the door saying, hey, by the way, I oppose gay marriage. As a way of explain, if he really feels like he needs to explain to his customers that he's baking the cake because he is a business open for operation to the public, do we really want to live in a world in which businesses open to the public get to say like I'm not going to make a cake for a gay wedding or I'm not going to serve a Jewish person or a black person? I mean, except I think
0: that if you actually manage to limit it to, to the bona fide religious objections, you're dealing with such a small number of outliers. In extreme cases, that it ultimately has no consequence. Well, well, I this, mean, it, but that's... The, go ahead. But the, I mean to ask Emily
2: to ask you a question about this. What happens when? What's the? What are the implications if the court comes down on this? What are the other? The other ways? I mean, because Hobby Lobby took this all the way into you know the the taking
1: away contraception
2: for thousands of employees potentially. Yeah. So if is it is the implication of this case, which I think on its face is quite small for the reasons you just cited, does it percolate and ripple out in ways that that can be grand if we let them.
1: Well, one question is the Kim Davis example. So what if you're a government employee and you don't want to provide a gay marriage license? Is that like the next case? Are we going to protect those people? I mean, I just, to me, so even if this is a small number of people, so what if this like opens the door to there being more of, I don't see why that's the winning argument. I mean, I see why you might decide not to bring the lawsuit, right? Like you might think like, who really cares? I don't want a cake from that guy. He's an asshole. Yeah. Fine. But I, I still just go back to the principle that if the state wants to protect people from being discriminated against on the basis of sexual orientation, then the state gets to enforce that law against businesses. Like That's how it goes. The, the voters of Colorado made a decision to have that protection in there.
2: Let's move on to a final third Supreme Court topic within this single Supreme Court topic, which is just <laughs> Neil Gorsuch. We've now seen him in action a little bit Emily, it seems that he's a very active dissenter and concurrer. He asks lots of questions. What have we learned about him from this first couple of months? And and is the balance of the court basically just where it was when we had Scalia? Has anything fundamentally changed?
1: He is looking absolutely as conservative as Scalia. And he's ex- very eager to make his presence felt. He wrote a number of concurrences, joined dissents with um, Thomas and Alito in a few cases, particularly at the end of the term, that were really noteworthy. So those three justices all wanted the court to take a gun rights case from California that was about the right to publicly carry a gun. The rest of the justices were like letting that lie. Gorsuch, Leo, and Thomas said that they were turning this Second Amendment into a kind of second-class right by not expanding um, its application in this case. And then there's this dissent he wrote that I really found infuriating in a case out of Arkansas about whether same-sex parents get to have their names on birth certificates and be treated the same as opposite-sex parents. That just seemed completely gratuitous. I think it was factually wrong, according to a piece that Mark Stern wrote in Slate. So you're just seeing like – Someone who is an excellent writer and has a lot to say, show up and take very, very conservative positions. He's going to be a very active member of the court on the right.
2: Is Kennedy retiring also?
1: No, probably not the day to do that really was the last day of the term Um, this past Monday. I mean, he could show up tomorrow and, you know, I think he's maybe on his way or uh, will soon be in Salzburg, Austria to teach and he could like issue a press release that he is retiring any day of the summer. It's not like there's some rule, but by tradition, he would have done it. And I have to say the next term is set up in a way where Kennedy is going to be all powerful again in the partisan gerrymandering case from Wisconsin in the cake. Case In some other in the travel ban case, he'll be really important. I mean, I just like, why would he do that? I always found this notion that he was going to leave because he was so pleased that Trump had appointed Gorsuch to be kind of infantilizing and, and irritating theory of Justice Kennedy. And it seems pretty clear that he has decide to stick around for next year.
0: What's the gossip? I mean, in your legal world, do people think he he doesn't want Trump to appoint his replacement and might try to hold out. You know, is he maybe going to wait and see if there's a Democratic House? And if, you know, Trump doesn't serve out his term, is he willing to stay a certain amount of time? I mean, what's just like, what do we think?
1: Well, he is a Republican, right? Yeah. I mean, the notion that he's so uncomfortable with Trump that he'd rather have the Democrats replace him seems far fetched. On the other hand, the idea that he could be pacified by the Gorsuch appointment and that he doesn't find something problematic about the Trump presidency also seems far-fetched. So maybe he's a little stuck in terms of his own timing. And also, maybe he just feels like he still has contributions to make. These are areas of law he's deeply invested in, and he's going to take it year by year and see, you know, what happens next. But maybe he's thinking about it more in terms of jurisprudence than in terms of politics.
2: The phony war over fake news claimed real victims this week. Three CNN reporters resigned after CNN had to walk back their report linking a Trump advisor to a shady Russian bank. This failure delighted Donald Trump and his team. They invited cameras back into the White House briefing room for the day so that Sarah Huckabee Sanders could deplore CNN and the media generally for its bias and vindictiveness toward the president. The president of course, has made a particular target of CNN, also the New York Times, the Washington Post, while House organs such as Breitbart and Fox are granted access and sweet honey nectar. Um, it, It seems clear that the war on the media is the key component, perhaps the only successful component and certainly the only component that Donald Trump actually cares about or is good at of his administration. So, Jacob, why is this their favorite issue?
0: Well in a way it's not even it's not even an issue it's a, it's a pose you know and I think one th- thing you have to notice about it if you've been watching it is I think it's deeply insincere you know trump is has the personal cell phone numbers of reporters for The Washington Post and the New York Times, and he's calling them all the time, and he's not calling them to yell at them and talk about how terrible they are he's He's playing the the game with them. he's leaking to them. Everyone in the administration leaks and talks to the press that they denounce every day, and I think it's a completely cynical posture where they are pandering to, you know, the worst elements. I mean, you can't say they're pandering to the worst elements because they also are the worst elements (laughs) – but they think this plays very well on the right and, you know, with their core base and the Fox News viewers um, who somehow think that the Fox is not part of the press. Um, and in a way, in some ways it isn't um, because it doesn't have the same sense of res- public responsibility. But I sort of just – at some level, I don't believe it. I think it's a complete fake and they're just – it's like it's play acting.
1: Right. Effective, though, when you look at the polls, I mean, the the only institution or one of the only institutions that are in worse shape in the polls than the presidency right now is the press. And so... There is a way in which like fake or not it's having a big impact and it is certainly part of this whole idea that you know facts are endlessly malleable and there is no such thing as truth and this kind of shredding of a common sense a common knowledge base a common set of facts from which we develop opinions.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I don't I don't mean to justify it or right. d- diminish it. It's terrible. It's it's you know there it's an attack on democracy. It's an attack on accountability. I mean all of that stuff is very real, but I I'm saying, even you know, don't start by crediting them with with thinking they actually believe what they're doing themselves. They don't. They're just they're just pandering.
1: So did CNN screw up this week? Like, should they have stood behind these three reporters and editors who resigned? Did they kind of impo- Brett Stevens, uh, the New York Times columnist, wrote I thought a really good column about this, and I hadn't thought of the idea that CNN overreacted. But oh, I think reading they did. him, I was like, oh, yeah, this makes sense to me. And
0: I don't think they should have fired Reza Aslan for, a you know, for an intemperate tweet. I mean, I think, you know, a zero tolerance policy, which is sort of what CNN is saying they have for error, is not – the way journalism works is that the error is an is it an irreducible component of journalism. You obviously want to be as accurate as possible and as careful as possible, but you make mistakes, and you have a policy for how you deal with those mistakes, which is to openly and honestly correct them in public. You don't say anybody who makes a mistake is fired. That's the wrong way to run a news organization.
2: I think you're right that they overreacted. Although I do think what's interesting about this whole thing it's backward is that cnn is very good at fact checking and lawyering has very strong internal controls they do hold themselves responsible i think you're right that the zero tolerance policy is is a foolish one and firing people for tweets is idiotic but um it's the total opposite of the world on the right where you have the lies of a breitbart or a fox or the trump administration which are go completely unpunished unrecanted there are no consequences at all. And that's, just totally depressing.
1: But what is also depressing is that by holding themselves accountable, CNN then is like offering itself up to this twisted narrative of Trump's that like, oh, this proves that you're lying and everything that you're, you know, printing or talking about is phony, right? That's incredibly frustrating to me that the self-correcting mechanism of mainstream media then gets, you know, thrown up in its face.
0: Right. So, I mean, the the media's stance should be we're going to do our job in the professional way we always do it and not be affected by Trump yelling at us. And I do think there is they've, – they've been – there's a distortion field that has pulled them over because they're being vilified. You know, they should say, we have a job to do. We know how to do it. We're accurate. We correct our mistakes Sometimes people do get fired for mistakes if there's an element of bad faith or extreme negligence. And maybe that – I mean we don't know exactly the story of what happened in CNN here. Maybe there was just a – you know, people bypassed procedures that they knew to exist and maybe some people deserve to be fired. But I don't believe in symbolic firing for this kind of thing.
1: We didn't see any public evidence of bad faith.
2: I'd, I kind of agree with all the people who say that the the White House press corps whining about the televiz- televising of the briefings – does not make them look good or make journalism look good that the media has in fact paid way 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 too much attention to trump and it has become clear six months into his presidency that nothing he says has any informational content that this administration is just full of lies and distortions and that it also is completely feckless and ineffective on policy and therefore there should just be a lot less coverage of whatever the white house is saying and doing because it's not really relevant to anything that's actually happening to human beings. It's a it's a spectacle that the administration is putting on that wants it wants coverage for, but it is not itself substantive. And therefore the a lot of the hand rigging over what Trump is doing to the White House media seems to me over overdone.
1: Yeah, I mean I'm very prone to that impatience, like just Get out of the briefing room. Go do some reporting. If they're not going to, you know, answer the questions, like, screw it. But I do think there is a way in which this limiting of, you know, any kind of challenging of the press secretary or whoever is giving the briefings and taking the briefings off the air. Like, there is something Potemkin-esque about this at the same time, right?
0: And and I think when you're a journalist, it's not just that you have to practice journalism. In this environment, you have to stand up for principle and for press freedom and for accountability. So I really love that that reporter got on a got high it, horse in the briefing the other, yeah, the other day. What well, was it? Was, it was uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Oh, right, right, yeah, and, that's right. you know, said basically, shame on you. You know, and I I think the briefing, you know, they're going to play this game with the briefing where they're not going to give a real briefing and they won't let it be on camera and they're, you know, and they're and Trump isn't going to give any interviews except Fox. I think when you have when the press has a point of contact with the administration, they have to say you're not doing what you should be doing under our system. And it's not just about perquisites. It's that you have an accountability job that you're not performing. So I think it should, you know, the confrontation can be two way.
1: Although it's tricky, right? Because when the press gets more combative with the administration, and more in your face, it plays this role of enemy, which is exactly playing into the hands of the administration, right, which wants the press to be the boxing partner that Hillary Clinton used to be. Like, those are the only two really useful enemies that Trump has come up with. And when reporters play that role, I don't know, I feel like it's hard to both be the like, we're doing our job, and that is to fairly cover you. And like, we're going to go, you know, take out the boxing. But
0: they can't do their job. You can't ask questions that get answered. You're there as a mannequin anyway. So well, you why not point it out?
1: Right. I mean, that's fine. You can't do that particular part of your job. On the other hand, that part of your job was always so spin infested anyway that it was of limited exactly. utility. Yeah, you exactly. can do other parts of your job for sure. I mean, especially in this White House, which is leaking like a sieve. Right? Right, right. So
0: give up on the briefing. But to the extent that people are still going to the briefing, they shouldn't go and sit there and be prop. But I, uh, there's one
2: other point, which I think I'm stealing from somebody. I'm not sure who it is. It, what is sinister, particularly sinister about what this administration doing substantively, I think, is not just its war on journalism, which is very real and it clearly serves a political purpose for them. It's a war on information and public access to information, disappearing and making hard to find and simply eliminating whole swaths of valuable information that the public needs to know. So whether it's purging climate data from the EPA whether it's shutting down access to who white house officials are meeting with it, there's hundreds of examples of that and i find that almost more sinister that's a, that is much less theatrical and is ultimately allows them to carry out policy evil policies or wrong-headed policies without us being able to to offer facts and rebuttal
1: totally agree
3: coming soon from slate podcasts
2: so
3: If we lose here,
2: it'll be fifty years before we ever get back up again.
3: Like the drag queen say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.
2: Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're you've gotten home from a tough White House briefing and you're having a, a large, large uh vodka and soda, as Jacob Weisberg does five or six times a day. Not my drink. <laughs> what uh, what will you be chattering about,
0: Jake? What will you chatter about? A great book I just read, which um, this subpart it's not it's not published here yet, but it's coming out called "The Seabirds Cry." It's by a writer called Adam Nicholson about the amazing and endangered phenomenon of seabirds. Puffins and gannets and
1: seagulls?
0: Uh, seagulls? Seagulls are like not the most interesting seabirds. Oh. Um, but these are the most whatever I read books ab- ab- about the natural world, no, they're not seabirds. Oh. <laughs> um, these are, you know, these are birds that live like far north in the, you know, um, the the Nova Scotia and then the British Isle the the Northern Islands, the Hebrides and up around the Arctic. It's an incredibly beautiful and elegant piece of writing where you have Chapters about each of these different seabirds and these unbelievable journeys they make, and what actually how they navigate is it by smell is it by you know because we they're so mysterious to us so little that we've actually known until quite recently about how these these creatures operate excellent that's great, Emily, what's your chatter?
1: I am picking up on um the Philando Castile verdict that we talked a little bit about last week and some of these other verdicts in police killings of unarmed people, black people where juries have not been finding police officers guilty. It's just been a rough recent spate of that. So I listened to such an interesting talk by Paul Butler, who is a law professor at Georgetown, calls himself a renegade prosecutor. And he has, because he used to be a prosecutor, he has a new book coming out, I think next month, called Chokehold about policing black men. Paul is an extraordinary thinker on these issues, really provocative. And there's a lot of law in this book, but also a lot of culture and a lot about his own experience both as a prosecutor and then someone who was falsely accused of a crime. So I recommend this book. And then I also want to recommend a new podcast called Cerebronas. I'm sure I am saying that wrong. The women who started this podcast are Stanford law students. Their names are Yvette Borja and Cynthia Emezcua. I apologize for whatever pronunciation mistakes I just made with that. But in any case, Cerebronas, they tell me, means brainy badasses in spanish and they're talking about legal issues they're talking about their own responses to things like the Falando castile verdict and their voices are really worth listening to so check it out cerebranas on itunes etc
2: is it in spanish
1: no it is very much in english <laughs>
2: <laughs> my chatter also about a book i got up at six this morning to finish the book i'm reading which is so great It's called American War. It's by Omar el Akkad, and it is in the vein of Underground Airlines. Those of you who listen to the GabFest may remember I raved about Underground Airlines, which was my favorite read of the last year. American War is similar in that it imagines – I guess Underground Airlines was set in in an alternative present. American War imagines a future, about 100 years in the future, when climate change has really devastated America and that we have – there's been a civil war fought over fossil fuels essentially with a south a fossil fuel loving south at war with the rest of the country and all sorts of other collapse but it's it's about the making of one particular southern terrorist a girl who grows up in in a in a refugee camp in the south book is beautiful and totally terrifying and presents a, a f- apocalyptic future that seems incredibly possible and reachable. And it's also just a great depiction of how someone becomes radicalized and how someone becomes a doer of evil towards others. So I cannot recommend this book enough, American War, Omar L. Akkad. Emily, you should definitely read it.
1: Yeah, I like That's both good. of these recommendations. I wrote them both down.
2: Also, actually, while I'm here, just a reminder for the, for if you're making your eclipse plans, you sh- you'd come to the Atlas Obscura Eclipse Festival in Eastern Oregon on, on August 21st. The eclipse is a once in a lifetime experience and we have a incredible adventure for you. Out there in a place where it's likely to have the best view of the eclipse in the country. So good Why well, is out.
0: it in Eastern Oregon? To, is, that, is it because there's no light pollution, or is there something about that spot? Uh, it doesn't see? light pollution doesn't matter because it's in the middle
2: of the day. It's because oh, it's right. dry and clear. Uh, it's like the most likely clear spot, sky. Clear sky. It's the most likely spot in the country to have clear skies. Like it also just, looks
1: okay. totally beautiful. And it's spot. a
2: gorgeous, gorgeous place in the Snake River Valley. So atlasobscure dot com slash eclipse. Our show today was produced. By Jocelyn Frank, as it is every week, so ably. Our intern is Kevin Townsend, as he is every week, so excellently. Please subscribe to the GabFest and Apple podcast review and rate the show. It really helps us. For Emily Bazelon and our delightful, always guest, Jacob Weisberg, host of TrumpCast. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Go listen to TrumpCast too, and we'll talk to you next week.